Well, hello, Coastway Church. Welcome, and I want to, uh, hopefully I'm not the first, but be the next to wish you a very Merry Christmas. If you're joining us online, Merry Christmas. If you are right here in the room, Merry Christmas to you. We are starting a new season in uh, the year, we're in our homes, in our lives, but we're also starting a new series as a church. And whenever we talk about a new series, we're always thinking about three things. And so if you're new, this will help let you know just what we are about as a church. First of all, we are thinking about relationships. You may or may not have realized this recently, but you are both needed and needy. There are moments in your life when you feel more needed by others, then there's times in your life when you just feel really needy for others, but that's the way that we were designed, and that's the way that we form and flourish is needed and needy. What do we do about that as a church? Well, we have something called the Weekender. What is the Weekender? We talk about it a lot around Coastway, but the Weekender is the on-ramp and the inroad for everything meaningful that we do as a church, and it's coming up this next Friday, and we would love to host you and have you join us for the Weekender. Uh, we're, uh, you can go online, coastwaychurch.com slash Weekender, or you can go outside and you can secure your seat. We're going to have dinner ready for you. Let us go ahead and take care of your dinner plans this Friday. We're going to talk about the direction that we're moving as a church, and we're going to give you the opportunity to move from a really curious about Coastway to connected to Coastway with all of the different meaningful aspects of being a part of a spiritual family in a local church. Additionally, we are going to be commissioning new launch team members who we have met since we moved here to start Coastway uh, earlier this fall. We're going to be commissioning new launch team members at the end of our services. We're going to invite some families, men, women, children, up here on the stage who are going to stand up and speak up and say, hey, we want God's local and global purpose is to be central to every part of our future. Uh, these are men, women, and children have a vision for their faith, a vision for their future, a vision for their families, and they want to walk out that vision alongside of a church that shares that vision to keep Christ at the very center. And you're just like, well, what does, what does commissioned mean? Essentially, commissioned means committed. That's it. I am committed to the purposes of God, the plan of God in my life. And that's as they stand up, they're speaking up to say just that. Additionally, we're thinking about resources. So resources. On the way in, uh, parents, you should have received a, a resource at Kids Check-In that is intended to help you put the marvel and the meaning of Christmas at the center of your home this Christmas season. And so uh, that's available at Kids Check-In for all the parents with littles. We want to make sure that we get that resource to you. Additionally, as you leave today, you or on your way in rather, you should have received a Bible reading plan. So what we, we believe that if we're going to invite people to take responsibility for the Word of God, then we need to give resources on how to get into the Word of God. So what could change for you this Christmas season if you would say, I'm going to go to the Word of God for a word from God? I would imagine there's probably some areas of your life where you're frustrated, uh, where you feel like a failure, or where you might, might even be afraid. The, the Word of God is the answer to all of those things, all of those frustrations, all those fears, all those failures. So we want to equip you to go further faster in the Word of God with this reading plan this Christmas 
season, and if you are uh, one of the uh, introverts in the room and you did not get one, I guess you're going to have to wait until after. If you're an extrovert, feel free to just raise your hand and just say, hey, over here, I need one of those reading plans. Don't be bashful. One way or another, we want to get that in your hands. Also, so we're talking about relationships, we're talking about resources, we're also thinking about responsibility. So responsibility, what does it look like to take responsibility with Coastway Church for the next uh, four weeks? Well, here's what it looks like. When we start a new series, uh, we are thinking about the entire scope of what we want to learn as a church throughout this series. So we don't think in terms of sermons, we think in terms of series. So what I want to encourage you to do is be here all four weeks. Uh, As much as you possibly can, make it happen to be here with us for the next four weeks. And if you know, if you're a college student, you're going to be going back home, or maybe you're visiting with family or whatever, you can join us online. But make plans to join us for the next four weeks because we have so many exciting things that are in store. And we believe that a sermon can help you. I hope today's sermon helps you, but we believe that this series could change you. And so that's what it would look like to take responsibility. Additionally, very excited. I wanted to share this last week, but I was told that I couldn't, so we needed to go ahead and keep the seatbelt on for this announcement until today. The next way you can take responsibility for moving the mission forward in Myrtle Beach is through what we call our overflow offering. So what is overflow? Well, if you're new, this is not for you. But just understand, as a church, we're we're excited to be to others as Christ has been to us. We're excited to give to others as Christ has given to us. And this is just a part of our culture as a church. We're stewards, and we seek to be generous in every manner of our lives. And so overflow is, for those who call Coastway home, this is our way of overflowing the way that God has been to us into the lives of others. And it's an opportunity from our church to move above and beyond our regular giving rhythms and have an abundance mentality with how we think about blessing others, not just being blessed ourselves. So let me ask you this question. What would it look like this Christmas season to ask the question, instead of how much can I get, how much can I give? I would imagine, or at least I hope, you're budgeting for friends. You're budgeting for family. What we want to ask is, will you budget for your faith? Will you be purposefully generous? I would imagine that our wallets and our purses are probably open to Target, to Amazon this time of year, uh, to other uh, marketplaces and platforms where we're, we're getting these gifts and so forth. But will, if, as your wallet and purse is open toward those places, will you keep your wallet and purse open toward the mission of God? So for us as a young church, overflow is an act of worship and it is a step of faith. Let me explain why. Because we're just getting started. The best really is yet to come, but we're off to a great start. But we want to start in the beginning with where we want to go in the end, and that's being generous. That's giving. And so 100% of every dollar that Coastway receives through the overflow offering is going right back into the community through our local partners. And let me tell you about the two local partners who we are purposing to bless this Christmas season and the end of the year. You know, 2020, it was a hard year. 2021, it's been a hard year. We want the first phone call that these two partners get in 2022 to be really, really good news. So the first partner is Coastline Women's Center. Let me tell you what Coastline Women's Center is all about. All about walking with moms facing, un, uh, facing unplanned pregnancies through really big life decisions. They have a decision to make. 
And what, what Coastline Women's Center is, is not just going to be spectators who are standing on the sidelines saying you should do this thing. They're going to be participants saying, we're going to get involved, and we're going to care for you, we're going to counsel you, and we're going to give you Christ-centered solutions to walk with you through this crisis, through this difficult decision that you have. They are uh, funding and fueling discipleship programs that help these moms work through just general stability and uh, general emotional clarity. And uh, just in 2021, we're really excited, 33, uh, uh, or excuse me, not 33, there were 33 salvations, there were 65 babies who were rescued from abortion. Additionally, 449 new uh, patients were seen by Coastline Women's Center who walked, welcomed them into their clinic and walked them through a really big decision. So we're really excited about giving to Coastline Women's Center. Additionally, we're really excited to give to this local middle school. Who has an educator in your life? Or you've been, you've been blessed by an educator at some point or uh, another. Um, educators have uh, very difficult and often thankless jobs. We're so grateful for the educators who God puts in our life. Uh, who has a teenager in your life? Or maybe you've, at one point you we were all uh, most, uh, uh, depending on your age, a teenager. Okay, it's a very confusing time. If you're a parent and you have a teenager in your life, then you probably have a really hard and thankless job as well. <laughs> but it can be emotionally confusing. We're unraveling the knots of our identity. Um, And what we believe is we believe that this is such a pivotal time and such a purposeful place for us to invest, to care for these teachers, care for these teens, and care for even some of the sports teams who are at Blackwater Middle School who otherwise would be under-resourced and underserved. We're We're so excited to be able to give back as God has been good to us. You can go to coastwaychurch.com slash give and you can invest this Christmas season in our overflow offering. Again, we want the first phone call that these partners get in 2022 to be really good news. So we're not setting an amount goal, we're setting a participation goal. If you consider Coastway your home, then we want to ask, will you open up your hands this Christmas to give to overflow? There's a lot of exciting things happening in our church. I want to pray for us right now, and then we're going to dive into week one of Here Comes Heaven. Pray with me. Uh, Father, you have blessed us so that we would bless others. And we are not in, intended or designed uh, to be reservoirs of blessing. We are intended to be rivers that flow out the blessings that you give to us. And so, God, I pray that this would be a season of both getting, uh, getting good from you and giving good from you as well. And Lord, I pray that we would find ourselves in meaningful relationships, uh, know you as our Father, the church as our family, that we would take advantage of these resources that that we're putting together to take us further, faster in our faith. Uh, And Lord, I pray that we would also, we would own responsibility. We would look for opportunities to do our part to be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so whether on your app or in your lap, open your Bibles and join me in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. I really believe that Christmas might just be the most wonderful time of the year. I don't know if you feel that way, you know, whether you're ready to be jolly or not. Here it is. Christmas is here. The Christmas season is everywhere. Everywhere, everyone and everything is communicating something special is going on. And it's really, it's actually a strange time. If you think about it, we take a tree from the outside and we put it inside. We take lights from the outside, we put them inside. Or excuse me, from the inside and we put it outside. We take socks from our drawers and we put them on the fireplace. Still, you know, I'm not sure what that's all about. We have really, some people have really strong opinions on Santa Claus. Some will say, hey, Santa, let's celebrate Santa. Let's redeem Santa. Let's, let's use this as an opportunity just to have, have fun. Others say, if you rearrange the letters that spell Satan, 
and you're not even playing. I'm like, that might be a little bit of a stretch. But regardless, either way, uh, the, the season is here, uh, and it's that time of year. We have jingle mingles that we are going to. We have ugly sweaters that we are wearing, uh, festive decor, uh, family dinners. It's all fine and good. I absolutely love it. But here's where we need to be really careful. If we're not careful, these good things can become blinders to the beauty of Jesus' birth, which is what Christmas is all about. And the birth of Christ is important because the birth of Christ is the detonator of our salvation. It, it is what ignites and enables every part of God's purpose and plan to bring us home to Him and for us to walk with Him for all eternity and at its core, Christmas is not about what's under the tree. Let's get that straight. It's about the one who hung on a tree to buy us back and to bring us back. And I think that this is important for us to acknowledge because never in our nation's history have we had such an educated population that is so uneducated about the Bible. Nothing can be assumed anymore. And that's why we see time and time again, we're starving for clear and compelling sermons, conversations that are rooted in Scripture that make sense of the, the senseless things that are going on around us, the madness that we see happening all around us and even inside of us. And this series, Here Comes Heaven, in many ways is designed to detox from the Americanized vision and version of Christmas. At Coastway, we want Christmas to be more scriptural than cultural and if you hang with us, some ideals around Christmas are going to be shaken up. There's going to be some ideas that you get rocked and some balloons that you get popped on what you thought Christmas was all about. Here's the invitation. Have an open head, open heart, and open hands. And certainly, let's keep an open Bible as we walk through these next four weeks together. And here's the question of the day. We're, we're going to talk a lot about this idea of what is the most impossible circumstance that you are currently facing. Get that in your mental dashboard, because what we're going to be doing is we're going to be boomeranging right back to the impossible situation that you feel like you are walking through right now. And in Luke 1, we're going to get a lot of hope, and we're going to get a lot of help, because we're going to see there's this trifecta of joy stillers uh, and Christmas killers that we all deal with. God is going to meet us on the level of our real struggles. Be encouraged. I would imagine that on some level in your life, you're dealing with confusion. I would imagine in some level of your life, you're afraid. I would imagine in some level of your life, you are experiencing doubts. We all need hope, and we all need help in all of these areas. So let me go ahead and give you the sermon in a sentence what is impossible for man is made possible with God. What could change? What would your life look like if each morning this December you would preach the gospel, the good news of God in Christ to yourself by saying this statement? As you're going into that interaction, maybe with your spouse, maybe with your kids, maybe with your boss, maybe as you're preparing for an exam, what is impossible for man is made possible with God. Verse 26, let's get going. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. All right, let's, let's park there and talk about angels for 
a minute because there's a lot of ideas <laughs> about angels and they're not all uh, equally true. It's very interesting how this happens. It's very interesting how Christmas starts. You see, throughout the Bible, when angels show up, it's something very, very important. And besides the devil, who is a fallen angel, an angel of darkness, who resisted and rebelled against God's reign and rule, and he was cast out, other than the devil himself, there are only two angels in Scripture who get names. And when they show up, something big is going down. The first is Michael, which means like God, and Gabriel, very fitting, which means God's power. So whenever, whenever you think about angels, don't think Chris Tomlin with wings. Don't think chubby babies with harps floating around on clouds. Don't think some skinny supermodel who looks like she skipped lunch and is still prancing around in her underwear. There's something so much bigger and so much better than angels. In most cases, angels appear to humans as humans. And so here's something that we need to reckon with. What does the scripture teach? Not all angels have wings. That's why at times they're mistaken for humans. And when their identity as angels is disclosed, they're a lot more impressive than they are. You don't have to worry about whether or not they're going to announce to you that they do CrossFit. It's very obvious that that's an important part of their life. So clearing up some confusion. When loved ones pass away, it's often said, heaven gained an angel. Grandma Lois now has her wings. And uh, if you come around Coastway long enough, you know sometimes I have to be that guy. Um, <laughs> the idea that we morph into angels after death is a lot more cultural than it is biblical. Hear me on this. Angelic beings are distinct from human beings. Just like you don't morph into an animal whenever you walk into the woods, you do not morph into an angel whenever you enter into eternity. Your essence and your being remains as it is. And here's why, that's good news. It's good news because Jesus' death was for human beings, not for angelic beings. In fact, the angels are so blown away, as Peter tells us, by the way God seeks, saves, and sends humans as core to his mission, that Peter tells us how the angels long to look into matters of salvation. They never run out of wonder over God's ways toward us. And notice this. Notice how the angel Gabriel was sent from God. So what is the purpose of an angel? Well, the purpose of an angel is to fulfill the mission of God by delivering a message sent from God. So God comes to us. It's proclamation through a messenger. And in this case, it's the great crescendo of God's message and messenger in that there is an incarnation, God in flesh, come down in a manger. This is why we say here comes heaven. Heaven is where God is. It's more of a person that you know than it is a place that you go. Maybe you've heard the phrase, the man upstairs. Man, I just hope the man upstairs shows me some favor today. You know, I'm going to lob a prayer to the man upstairs. Probably not the best way to refer to God. And here's why. Because God does not relate to us as a man on the second floor relates to us on the first floor. He relates to us the way that Shakespeare would relate to Hamlet. He would have to write himself into the story for Hamlet to have any, co any concept of his being and existence. God cares so much about a relationship with you. God cares so much about a relationship with his church that he, check this out, wrote himself into a story that would get him killed instead of you. 
And that's where all this is headed. Verse 26b, we see that the angel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Okay, so here's what you need to know about Nazareth. Nazareth was nothing. You, you ever go on a road trip before, and you just have a really long runway before you can find a pit stop? And you're like, okay, where's the next stop off? You know, everybody's got to go to the bathroom. Everybody's cranky. Everybody's hungry. We need to stop off. Nazareth would not be the place that you would want to stop off for a road trip. Uh, think uh, very small, very, very poor, very rural, <laughs> very uh, illiterate group of people. And it is uh, generous estimates tell us that there may have been 100 people total who lived there. When it was made known to the Jews of Jesus' day that he came from Nazareth, they said, nothing good comes from Nazareth. You must have the wrong guy. Verse 27, we see sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And so here we meet Mary and Joseph. Or as my four-year-old daughter likes to say, Jophus. So Joseph was probably 18 to 20 years old at the time. So he's just like starting to shave. Uh, he's a, a poor carpenter from Nazareth by trade. He's betrothed to Mary. Mary raise Jesus and he can't even rent a car yet. So what does it mean to be betrothed? You're just like, well, that sounds a little painful. Well, in some ways it was. Basically, reverse the order of the, the, the marriage intimacy. Imagine saying the vows of your marriage, but then you, you can't sleep with your spouse for a particular period of time. You're like, that sounds painful. Well, it was probably very difficult. But that was the way that a Jewish wedding would be uh, orchestrated as you would say your vows, and then you would go through a betrothal period where basically the guy would go out and prove that he could work a job, hold down a job, and care for the betrothed, and it would be a point where it was just like being married. And during this time, we see that we can learn a lot of things from Joseph. Let me just give you two things really quick that, that we as men can learn from Joseph. Number one, what we can learn from Joseph as men is to uh, take responsibility even when life does not go our way. So imagine how hard it would have been for Joseph to receive this news that his wife is pregnant, and there's no biological, physical explanation for how she would be pregnant other than that she was unfaithful. And so Joseph had a choice to make. He could divorce her, which he was a, he was a noble man. We actually read that before the angel appeared to Joseph that he was going to do that. He was going to divorce her, as uh, Matthew says, quietly. But the angel appears to Joseph, and this, men, please listen up right here. When God reveals truth, that counteracts your understanding of the way things should be, we ought to listen. And so what Joseph, he has this idea in mind, I'm going this direction, but then God reveals something to me through his word, through an angel. For us, it's through his word, through his spirit, and through his church. But when God contradicts something that we feel strongly about, well, how do we respond as men? We fall on our face. We humble ourselves. We say, God, you are right. I am wrong and I will walk with you. So that was one of the first things that we could learn from Joseph, because Joseph goes on to be a great stepdad to Jesus. He taught Jesus how to build end tables. He taught Jesus how uh, to, to build benches and tables, and he, he taught a trade to the Son of God. I mean, what, what a noble calling. What a hard calling. 
But another thing that we can learn from Joseph is for men not to overlook the godly single moms that we see around us. Oftentimes, this is like taboo. But what Joseph says is he says, you know what? God has said it. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to take responsibility in this particular way. And then we're introduced to Mary. So (laughs) think uh, the pictures that we have of Mary can be very confusing. Um, Understand Mary was not a white woman uh, in her 30s adorned with a halo. Uh, Have you ever raised daughters, parents, grandparents? Okay, think about that point or uh, imagine uh, that point when they're going to be 15, maybe 18 years old. That's probably how old Mary is. She owned one peasant dressed, maybe had one wooden stool that Joseph got her for Valentine's Day, and she was responsible for probably gathering firewood for her home and helping around the house. And it says that she was a virgin. Now, this this clashes with so much of what we hear, see, and think as a culture, and it raises at least two questions. Number one, how can you believe in a virgin birth? I mean, that sounds on track with the tooth fairy. Sounds a little bit like the Easter bunny. But if you just reason together, what do Christians believe? We believe that even in the beginning in Genesis 1, that the Holy Spirit was present. And the Holy Spirit had creative power to bring something from nothing. It's what we call ex nihilo. God created out of nothing. And for us to believe that God can create out of nothing in the beginning, but that God can't miraculous bring about a virgin birth would be a little bit like looking at a mathematician and saying, you can't do basic math. It's fundamental and it's foundational to what we believe as Christians is that God is omnipotent. That means that he is all powerful. But this is probably uh, the more delicate question is, how do you remain a, a virgin before you're married? Or why would you even want to be a virgin before you are married? If we acknowledge in our hookup, Shack up, break up culture. What this sounds is regressive. This sounds restrictive. And back in 2005, there was a movie starring Steve Carell called The 40-Year-Old Virgin. And it was people like so entertaining. Laughed at it, got a, got a kick out of it. And basically the plot of uh, 40-Year-Old Virgin was you have Andy who works in an electronics store. He doesn't have a whole lot of friends and he is your stereotypical nerd. Like, not a whole lot of people are trying to be Andy's friend or get around, get around him. And it just so happens that he's never slept with a woman before, and he's 40 years old. Now, understand, I am not endorsing the movie. I'm explaining the movie. Here's what happens. What happens in the movie is the whole movie is designed to have two emotional effects. Number one, uh, to make you uh, laugh at Andy for still being a virgin and laugh at anyone else who would think that it's cool to be a virgin. That's effect number one. And number two, it's for you to get to a point where you cheer for Andy to change that, and you pressure either yourself or others who might say, I'm going to pursue, I'm, I'm going to remain sexually abstinent until I'm married, or I have done that, to pressure those people to change that attitude. Here's what we need to understand. Uh, Christmas flies in the face of that message. And here's why. God picked a godly teenage girl from a small town who had never slept with a man to walk through an unplanned pregnancy and then raise God in flesh. Let me just ask you, 
Put yourself in the sandals of Mary and Joseph. How would you respond? Well, uh, in our secular West cultural moment, there would be pressure, even encouragement, for Joseph to go to divorce court. In our secular West cultural moment, there would be applauding and cheering for Mary to make an appointment at Planned Parenthood. And if you want to hear more about that and why that's significant, make sure that you're here next week because we're going to dig a little bit more into the ramifications there. But here's what we need to understand. God's ways are not our ways. He comes to this lowly place and this lowly person in verse 28, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. Culture would say, Banished, O cursed one. But the angel said, The Lord is with you. Now, what does O favored one mean? This is a great time, and I want to seize this opportunity, to deal with something pastorally and theologically uh, as a church. Uh, And that is, what are the differences between evangelical Protestantism and Roman Catholicism? Uh, So think about it this way. Um, You look at a house from the outside, right? And the, the, the exterior, it could look very similar but it could have a very distinct foundation. And ultimately, the character of the house, the the reliability of the house, is going to be anchored upon how good is that foundation. And I just want to submit and say humbly and graciously that there is a significantly different foundation beneath Protestantism, uh, which is basically gospel-guided, faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone, and Roman Catholicism, which I want to explain a little bit of the differences right now. And I I do want to say, we have met a lot of Catholics since we moved here to Myrtle Beach. And here's the narrative. Very nice people. Very gracious people. Very theologically confused people. Neither clear on or compelled by the claims that are made by uh, the Catholic beliefs and values. Uh, and what it does is it raises pastoral and theological concerns. So let me, let me just give you a brief rundown, and I'm going to go really quick. You may want to go back and check the podcast or maybe stream on YouTube if, you, if this interests you and is helpful for you, but I'm going to go really quick. Brief rundown, what are the similarities between Catholicism and Protestantism? We believe the same things about the Trinity. God, three in one, Father, Spirit, and Son. Uh, eternal, uh, same essence, equal. We believe that. We believe that Jesus is the sinless, selfless, substitutionary Son of God. We believe in the sinfulness of humanity. We both believe in the necessity of personal and conscious salvation. We are not universalists, so we would unite on those things. We do believe the same things about some of the most important things, but not all of the most important things. And that brings to the differences. First of all, on Mary. Uh, The Catholic Church believes that Mary is venerated by the Holy as the Holy Mother of God, who lived a blameless life, free of original and personal sin by virtue of divine privilege. So Mary is essentially sinless. Protestant, the Protestant church believes Mary is a godly woman who was given the great responsibility of birthing and raising Jesus, but was also a broken sinner in need of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, what do we believe about authority? The Catholic Church teaches that the Bible plus what is known as the Apocrypha, which are books that were uh, allegedly written between the Old Testament and the New Testament, is inspired scripture. That church tradition is also 
on track in terms of the weight of authority. And the, the word, the decree of the Pope as well is as if an apostle is speaking with inspired authority from God. What do Protestants believe? The Bible. Minus the Apocrypha. And you're like, well, what's the Apocrypha? I've never heard of that. Basically, we as Protestants, we believe they are extra-biblical books that did not make the original canon of Scripture for a number of reasons. And there's some great literature out there if you want to read about it, but essentially, Jesus never quoted the Apocrypha. No apostle ever quoted the Apocrypha. And for the first four centuries in church history, the Apocrypha was not viewed on any level as inspired Scripture as with the Old Testament or the New Testament. On the sacraments, or what we would call the ordinances, the Catholic Church believes there are seven sacraments. And here's a big difference. They are viewed as means of salvation. By receiving the sacraments, I am receiving and even increasing my standing with God in salvation. And so it's, uh, it, with the Protestant Church, there are two sacraments, or two ordinances. And these are not means of salvation. They are evidence of salvation. Evidence that it has already happened. And that would be baptism and communion. And this brings to the big major difference. And this is why you, you, you really need to look inward and say, what do I believe really? Or what do my Catholic friends believe really? And it's about the doctrine of justification. So basically the Catholic Church says that sinners are justified by God through faith in Christ and through their own works. The Council of Trent, which was the establishment of Catholic doctrine and authority, says this, if anyone says that the faith which justifies is nothing but divine mercy because of Christ, let him be anathema. The catechesis of the Catholic Church says, one may well be fearful and anxious as to the state of grace as nobody knows the certainty of faith. This is very different than the Protestant proclamation on justification. We believe sinners are justified by God solely through faith in Christ's work in which we can have assurance. So Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. It's the gift of God, so no one may boast. John 1, 12 says, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right, the assurance, the confidence to become children of God. So if you or someone you know would identify as Catholic, I have two very honest sincere questions that I want to ask. One is theological. The first question is, how good is good enough? At what point do you know I've made it? At what point are you ready to stand before God? And in most narratives, in most conversations, the Catholic feedback is, I'm not or I don't know. Very troubling. Uh, second of all, this would be a pastoral question, and that is, are your beliefs really your beliefs? Or was this something that was passed down to you by a figure of authority that you have yet to look into and test and say, this is mine, this is what I believe? Uh, just kind of a silly illustration here. I was, uh, a couple years ago, I was getting ready to leave for work, and it was cold, it was in the mountains, and I picked up some chapstick. Okay, it sounds, you know, innocent enough or unassuming enough. And so I put the chapstick on, I'm getting ready to walk out, out of the house, and my wife says, you can't go out like that. And I'm like, what just, what you, what's going on? She says, that's colored chapstick. It looks like lipstick. And it's mine, not yours. You need to go and wash off before you go to work. <laughs> okay, so a couple of things. 
Number one, it wasn't mine. And number two, I made a mistake. (laughs) And it almost cost me a lot. Here's the reason why I say this. Make sure that what you believe is really yours. (laughs) Make sure that at at, at the fundamental level, this is what I believe, this is mine, because clearly there are some weighty differences that affect life now and later between Catholicism and Protestantism. Verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Notice Mary was greatly confused, and we are too. So what are, uh, what are some areas in your life where you are confused? Let me help you out with this. Look at your past. Look at your problems. And look at your pain. I would imagine on some of those levels, you can analyze some confusion in your life. And we see that what, what Mary tried to discern and understand um, was she was not sure all of what was going on. But here's what she did do. She kept listening. She didn't stop God mid-sentence. She didn't cut off the angel Gabriel and say, no, I'm done. Didn't cancel God, didn't cancel the angel. Kept listening for God's voice. And this leads me to the first of three solutions to the trifecta of joy killers, confusion, fear, and doubt that I want to give to you today. Number one, God responds to our confusion with His promises. So trust Him. So here in a few more verses, verses 31 through 33, Gabriel will make at least six promises to Mary. As a virgin, you will bear a son who is the eternal king sent to rescue from sin, Satan, death, and hell. That's the substance of the promises. Uh, Did you know, it's interesting, uh, uh, gift cards. Okay, maybe you've received a gift card lately. You'll probably get a gift card for Christmas. Um, But $5.8 billion worth of gift cards go unclaimed every single year. These are gifts, benefits that have already been purchased and have since been given that never get enjoyed. And I think that's the way that God's promises are. The same can be said of God's promises. There are roughly 3,000 of them within the pages of Scripture. And yes, some apply to specific and unique situations like Mary in Luke 1.31. However, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And so each promise has been purchased by Christ's blood for God's people. And God has never made a promise that He has failed to keep, but He often makes promises that His people fail to claim. And what sustained Mary through the doubts of birthing and raising the Son of God? It was the promises of God. Just walk walk with Mary for a moment. She was not good at reading. She probably couldn't even read, but she was really good at remembering. You see, when her family wanted to disown her as a pregnant teen, what did she do? She remembered the promises. When she gave birth in a borrowed cave with farm animals, and it was not a silent night, she remembered the promises. When she ran out of wine at the wedding and the guests could no longer celebrate, she remembered. And she gave the best advice in human history to those who were interacting with Jesus in that moment. Do whatever he tells you. And behold, she remembered. When the one who who carried Jesus in her womb was carrying Jesus to his tomb, she remembered. And in that moment, she, I, I imagine what was that like as a mom watching your son being carried as a lifeless corpse to the crypt. And I, I can't help but think that she went back to this moment and she said, his kingdom will never end. This does not end in 
death. And what sustained Mary through her doubts is what will sustain you through your doubts. It will be remembering and trusting God's promises. So are you struggling with your family? Men, let me start with you. Psalm 128, will you believe it? Will you believe that if you fear the Lord, your wife will be like a fruitful vine and that your children will flourish around your table? Are you suffering in some way? Will you believe what Paul promised through the Holy Spirit says in Romans 8.18? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Or maybe you're sacrificing something, you're giving up something, you're risking something. Do you believe what Jesus said in Matthew 19, 29? Hey, you've left behind homes. You've left behind hope. For my name's sake, I will give you eternal life. I will reward you a hundredfold. Are you sinning? Are you getting pinned to the mat with temptation? Do you, will you believe 1 John 1, 9? Will you claim that promise in context and know that if I confess my sins, He is faithful and just to forgive all my sins and purify me from all unrighteousness. Loved ones, there are 3,000 gift cards in your Bible that Christ has purchased for you. Personalize them and face the impossible. Verse 30, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Mary struggled with fear. You and I do too. And there's basically there's two reasons why we are afraid. Number one, it's because I am not in control. You see, if you were in control, you would be confident, not afraid. Uh, but the second reason is because I am going to die one day. It doesn't matter how powerful the Pope, the princess, or any person ever gets in this life. We all have the same thing in common. We die. And I would even reason that COVID did not cause fear. COVID exposed fear. It pressed down on the cracks and crevices of our fears and flushed out this recognition, I'm not in control, and I will die one day. How does God respond to our fear? God responds to our fears with His presence. So what do we do? We walk with Him. God's presence is God's favor. The greatest sign of favor in the eyes of another is that they want to be around you, not have to be around you. You've probably heard that God is with you, but have you heard how much He wants to be around you? You see, the opposite of presence is absence. It's what happens when someone you look to walks out. And there's layers to it. It's not as simple as their fault, my fault. You know, it's, sometimes it's them. Sometimes it's us. Usually it's both. But if you've been dumped before, if you've walked through a divorce, you've been forgotten by a friend, you've been abandoned by a parent, you've been cut off by a child, that feels awful. And it fuels our fear. But receive the gospel. Even though you failed before, even though you will fail again, even though you are fully at fault for severing ties with God, He refuses to give up on the relationship. He went so far as to being willing to bridge heaven and earth through a virgin birth that would move toward a violent cross to restore what was broken. But it doesn't end in death, it ends with victory. And that's the assurance that we have with God's presence. Notice how Gabriel reassures Mary in verse 28. The Lord is what? 
with you. Verse 30, you have found favor with God. Isn't it encouraging that God assured Mary of his presence before he called her to the impossible? And he does the same with you and I. It's not a question of, is he speaking? It's a question of, am I positioning? Am I positioning myself to hear the voice of God? Am I putting myself in a position like this every week to hear and receive the word of God and grace and truth? Am I putting myself in a position to where I can be around other people who are pursuing God's presence, seeking to hear God's voice? Am I looking for an opportunity to welcome the presence of the Holy Spirit into my life by obeying what Jesus commands or by staying away from what Jesus condemns? This is how the power and the presence of God comes home in our lives. And for the person, I know you're here, sometimes it's me. You don't feel God's presence as much as you feel God's absence. I want to acknowledge we all feel that way at times. Consider Jesus cry from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you've got to understand, Jesus' story didn't stop there and yours doesn't have to either. Think about it this way. Just because the clouds block the sun and prevent the visibility or your ability to feel the warmth of the sun on your face, that doesn't mean that the sun went away. Similarly, just because you have frustrations, just because you have failed in ways that fuel your fear, it doesn't mean that God has left you. What it probably means is that you need to take him by the hand again because As you do so, you're going to realize he was reaching for you regardless. When you pulled away, when you resisted, when you rebelled, you take him by the hand again and you take your next step forward. So let me just index a few examples. There is a lot of church hurt in Myrtle Beach. We we see it every single week. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've been hurt by church. What would it look like for you to walk back to this gathering again for the next four weeks? What would it look for you? to walk with God, taking him by the hand, to the weekender this coming Friday and and saying, God, I've been hurt, but I'm not going to let my scars define my story. I'm going to let your scars define my story. Maybe you're afraid to open your mouth and share your faith with a neighbor who lives across the street. You know, would you be willing to risk rejection, walk with God on your way across from your house to their house and say, or from your dorm to their dorm, or from your cubicle to their cubicle, and pray on your way, God, give me 30 seconds of insane courage. You don't want to go to another doctor's appointment. Would you walk with God into that doctor's appointment again and say, God, you're sovereign over death, disease, and this will not end in despair. Maybe you're scared to give. Maybe maybe the, the sound of overflow was was not music to your ears, but it was it was madness. You're like, you don't know how chaotic my finances are. What would it look like for you to walk with God, take him by the hand and say, this December, we're, we're putting a budget together and we are going to plan to be generous. We are going to plan to give back and we're going to take God at his word. He says that he blesses us to be a blessing. We're going to believe that even when we can't see that. And we're going to walk with God as he first walked toward us. It's as if God says, don't be afraid over and over and over and over again, because he knows that we're going to get afraid over and over and over and over again. In fact, 366 times 
in Scripture, God says, don't be afraid. It's as if he's budgeting for every moment of fear on every day of the year, including leap year. There you go. There's a bonus. Verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Mary dealt with doubt. We deal with doubt too. And if you deal with doubts, you would make a great disciple. Because what do we do with our doubts? We pick them up, we follow Jesus, and we move in the direction that he calls us. And a lot of times we get the clarity as we go, not as we distance ourselves. Those three types of doubt that we deal with. First of all, there is factual doubt. And uh, researchers say that only 15% uh, of, of you or uh, of, of people deal with factual doubt. That's like, I find the resurrection hard to believe. What about evolution? How do you know that the Bible is historically accurate? Uh, I have questions, and there's actually some great resources. If you're an honest, factual doubter, there are some incredible resources, some great answers. 2,000 years of church history. There is no question that you're asking that someone smarter than you, someone wiser than you, has not asked before you. <laughs> And we would do well to avail ourselves of that knowledge. But only that's, that's not most. Most of us were emotional doubters. So what happens? We think with our feelings. We, 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 we think with how do I feel. And so here's, here's where it intersects. I'm thinking about um, my failures. God could never love me. You know, there's no way. You're thinking with your feelings. You're not thinking with the facts of what God has said. He said you can't out the cross. You can't go so far, so far that God won't pursue you farther. Or maybe it's like I, my family. My family hurt me. My family's hurtful, or I've seen some hurtful things in my family. So I just can't believe. Um, or I think about my friends. What are my friends going to think? Am I going to have to completely reframe my social network if I start following Jesus fully? Am I willing to risk that? Or what is this going to mean for my future? And so we start getting in our feelings in a way that is an obstacle to faith. And I would say that's natural, but it's, it's an okay place to visit. It's a bad place to stay. You've got to let the promises of God and you've got to let the presence of God be what drives you into the future. And next, there is willful doubt. This is just the person that refuses to believe. It doesn't matter how much evidence. It doesn't matter how much experience comes out. There's just a hardened heart. I'm not listening. What does God do about our doubts? Let's find out. Uh, verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Number three, God responds to our doubts with his power. And so we depend on him. One of my favorite movie scenes of all time happens in the movie, right at the end of the movie, Jurassic World, which, by the way, you may not know this, is the sixth highest grossing movie of all time. It even beat out Lion King, so it was epic. And so in basically the plot of Jurassic World, it came out in 2015, 
was you have this new Jurassic Park that is built on the other uh, original site of the former Jurassic Park. And what the main attraction of Jurassic World is this genetically engineered killing machine called Indominus Rex. It's a, a, a merge between a Tyrannosaurus Rex and a Velociraptor. Really gnarly. Wouldn't want to run into it uh, uncontained. And so what happens is uh, Indominus Rex gets out, escapes the paddock, escapes containment, and wreaks havoc and unleashes fury on Jurassic World. And so you know, basically the whole uh, island is in checkmate when Owen and Claire, the protagonists of the movie, realize that they have yet to avail themselves of the greatest power available to them on the island. And so it, they, they uh, signal up to the control room, and it was just like the whole, you could feel the whole movie theater just like on pins and needles. What is about to happen? And they say, open paddock nine. And so Claire goes and she's got this flare. And right as the paddock is opening, you hear boom, boom, boom. And it's the original Tyrannosaurus Rex who comes like raging out of the paddock. And all of a sudden, the impossible seems possible because a new power has been unleashed. I'm no longer trying to fight this, this, this battle in my own power, but a new power has been unleashed, which then leads to, a, essentially, spoiler alert, you've had six years to see it, they beat Indominus Rex. And what this illustrates is how when God's power is unleashed in our life, it is always greater than our past. It's always greater than our pain. It's always greater than our problems. And much like with Mary, when God calls you to an impossible ta task, he opens paddock nine and he supplies you with his power to repent, to forgive, to stay, to serve. And it leads us to a place where we can join with Mary, verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So God... What, see what happened. God makes the impossible possible by meeting us on the level of our confusion, our fear, and our doubt. We bring the real us with real problems to a real God. He gives us real hope, and He gives us real help, just like He did with Mary. And with God's it's, His promises, I'm going to remember them. I'm going to trust Him. His, His, His presence and His power. In our life, we can say what Mary said, let it be to me according to your word. And I'm not sure how many uh, of us walked into this room this morning saying that. Lord, let it be to me according to your word. But every single one of us can leave this place saying that. What is the most impossible circumstance that you are facing? What is it? Go back to it. And understand that there is nothing that is more impossible than what Jesus first endured in your place and on the cross. You see, 33 years later, the, the baby in the cradle would grow to be a man on a cross. And with the cross before him, the world behind him, the eve of his crucifixion, he is rumbling with the reality, all of the fear, all the confusion, all of the doubt that you and I would ever experience, that humanity has ever experienced, cast on him in a garden. And he says, God, if there's any other way, let's take it. But let it be to me according to your word. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And for a God who faced the impossible for you, will you trust the impossible to him?